0: My name is Jen Buchaltz. I'm a forensics and criminal justice professor at American Military University, an army veteran and a criminal investigator for my local sheriff's department. I'm
1: George Jarrett. I'm an investigative journalist and award-winning true crime author.
0: Together, George and I are the lead investigators for AMU's Cold Case Investigative Team. This is a bonus episode addressing some of the questions that have arisen since William Miller's conviction for first-degree murder in October of 2022. This podcast contains details and descriptions of actual homicide victims and their injuries, including sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. In December of 2022, George and I finally got a copy of the case file containing the investigative documents relevant to Rebecca's case. The documents provided to us totaled nearly 2,000 pages and were basically in disarray. It took us quite a while to go through everything and get it organized. Going in chronological order, we posted a majority of the documents in our Facebook group, Unsolved Murder of Rebecca Gould. In addition, we got access to William Miller's interview, conducted by Arkansas State Police Special Agent Mike McNeil and Oregon State Police Detective Damian Acosta. The following clips provide listeners with some of the key points of Miller's interview with police in November of 2020, 16 years after Rebecca's murder. A reminder to listeners that Arkansas State Police Special Agent Mike McNeil traveled to Cottage Grove, Oregon to interview Miller, who had been unable to return to his home in the Philippines because of COVID-19 restrictions. This first audio clip is the audio from the minute that McNeil escorted Miller, who also goes by Billy, into the interview room. Listeners can watch the full audio and video recordings of Miller's interview on my YouTube channel, Jen Buchaltz, P.I.,
2: Billy, if you want to have a seat. Right? Yes, sir. You can take that mask off if you want to. Like I'll, I'll sit over here and we'll try to stay six feet apart. and Sure. And that kind of thing. So how's it going? It's going all right. Yeah. Just uh,
3: finally we moved down here. Right. Came back to the station, all that stuff, came over here. and uh, So are you
2: back now for good?
3: no i still work back and forth and all that stuff okay. um usually due to the corona stuff uh we've had uh, issues of me getting home in the philippines right because so that's where i do live and stuff right most of the time i go there and do two years and then i
2: come back over here for like nine days to do a health check well, cool well first off let me tell you this is called a non-custodial interview. Okay, uh, you probably never heard of such a thing, but what that means is you came up here voluntarily. You're not being detained. Uh, you're free to go at any time. That door is not locked. I'm not advising you of your Miranda rights or none of that kind of stuff. Okay, so this is a non-custodial interview, and I just want you to know that I really appreciate you coming up and and you know I, I came all the way from Arkansas and you yeah know, and
3: No, I, I you know I'm gonna tell you what I told the police down in Texas when they came and stuff yeah and I'm gonna be honest with you and truthful with you yeah. on everything you know maybe I saw something that maybe be a key factor in something there and all that stuff right
2: right okay so I just want to make sure you're, you're okay with I know my rights and all that okay, stuff. Okay, you're so willing to talk to me. I'm willing to talk okay. to you and all that okay. stuff. Okay, all right. You know, still, and I respect you in, in every way because your job is a hard job. Yeah, and all that stuff. Right. I was thinking if I could ever, if you ever make back to Arkansas, maybe we could, you know, get you to take a polygraph because a bunch of people have taken polygraphs in that thing. You know, what, what are your thoughts on that? I don't even know if you'd ever be back in Arkansas i don't know and all that stuff Uh, most time i'm i'm going back and forth to work and all that stuff and due to this
3: corona stuff uh when i go back to work i might be two to three months yeah stuck overseas and stuff right so but no i don't have no issue when i sat there and, and told them down in texas you know whatever you want i'll give it to you i don't have nothing to hide yeah what i remember is when the guys came to texas and stuff I do not know what they wrote down. Right.
2: The information that was provided, that you guys provided in 04 was, uh, you know, condensed to just a few paragraphs. You know, the the investigator that came out and talked to you guys really didn't provide a, a lot of information. And, you know, going back and looking at this thing, there's just... There's a lot of stuff that we don't know about who you are as an individual, who Jeremy is, who your mom is, all these things. So uh, that, that's kind of you know, one of the things that I wanted to talk about. Is there, so you're an oil field worker. I've been working in an oil field for
3: 23 years. Right. I uh, was working for an island, island operator, working a 7-7 seven seven Schedule. I remember moving mom up there and then she was uh moved into that little house i I, it was a couple miles down the road from grandpa's property and stuff and grandpa was leasing that land uh, that from that farmer or whoever had that property Uh, the names it's It's the old
2: wolf farm is what
3: it was called okay
2: yeah yeah Uh, Uh, and you're right that was about your mom's house was about two or three miles from the McCullough trailer where this happened. And so, but when I would go up there, I
3: wouldn't hardly see any of the boys at all. Mm -hmm. You know, they're off doing their own thing and stuff. And I would more like hang out with Grandpa, if Uncle Bobby was off the road or whatever, Right. Then I would see him. Alrighty, so, um, so
2: I've been in that home and all that stuff, and Prior to the homicide, yes. How many times had you been in that trailer? You think Uh, maybe, maybe two, three times. So she was, Rebecca was killed in September of '04. When was the last time you were in that trailer? You think it was be way before that months. Do you remember why were you in the trailer and what did you do? Did you stay the night? Did you sleep? No, did you I, I was with
3: there with grandpa, he used the restroom. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there was a couple of times that I've been in there and then there was, you know, I'm just saying that we we visited, went out on the back of the property, and then a couple of times where, you know, I'm just saying a couple of times, I'm saying two, three times, I'm not prior to O four just a yeah. few times. Uh Okay, so mom's telling me that she wants to move back down to Texas.
2: Uh-huh.
3: So I told them, okay, you need to have everything packed because we're on a 7-7 schedule where I need to haul butt up there, pack up, up everything, and then get, you know, back down to Texas to go to work. Right.
0: Miller's claim of working seven days on followed by seven days off is not true. We know this because he was interviewed twice in Texas in 2004 once on Friday, September 24th, the Friday following Rebecca's disappearance, and then two days later on Sunday, September 26th. These interviews took place at his mother's house and Miller was present. This means Miller was off work for at least nine days by that time. So the claim of them needing to rush to move her down to Texas so he could return to work offshore is invalid. It appears to just be an excuse for why they left Arkansas so quickly after the murder.
3: So mom and uh, mom's like, okay, so I drove up, I get there Sunday, Sunday between maybe three, 4 or 5, I'm not totally for sure. Late in the day. Later in the day, because it wasn't long before it got dark. Right. Uh, Jeremy was home, I called, uh, Jeremy called, or we called Mom, and I think Mom was over at Grandpa's, and if Evan would be there shortly. Now, now hang on, Becca,
2: you, whenever you first got to Melbourne, where did you go? Did you go out to the farm, out to your mom's house? Yeah, out to mom's
3: house Okay, all that stuff. And that was on a Sunday. Right. Jeremy was there. Okay. Alrighty. It wasn't long before it got dark and all that stuff. Uh, so got there, called mom, I think mom was over at grandpa's house and stuff. Right. And then said he'll be there shortly, come. She sits there, cooks
2: dinner and all that stuff. Monday morning. Well, hang on now. So, in the information that was provided to Texas in '04, um, you said that whenever you showed up in Melbourne, that you went and visited family in the small town. So that made it sound like that, that you were with your mom and that you visited family in the small town. So, do you remember going to the grandparents' house on Sunday? Because that's what you told investigators in '04. I don't and all that stuff. Yeah. Do you think that uh, probably if you, if you said it in 04 that that would probably be more accurate than... would
3: probably be more accurate because we sat there and went and then... And, and, uh, during that time, now the, the neighbors, because this is kind of odd, because I did tell the police that, you know, the neighbors were constantly weirdos and all that stuff. Constantly, they, they got the door cracked, back door cracked, they got the, uh, the blinds, you know open kind of like staring at you and watching everything that's being done so um, but let me get on with the story yeah. i get up there i sat there and sunday and then i'm not totally for sure if we went and saw grandpa or whatever or running around i just know that i got up there sunday monday got up took jeremy to school then after that you took
2: Jeremy to school Monday morning?
3: Yeah. Me, mom, and Jeremy went to the school, dropped them off and stuff, and then we went to Ash Flat. Uh oh, cool. all right. And then from Ash Flat we found oh. out that we couldn't get the trucks and stuff. So then we went back to the Wolf Farm and Grandpa and Troy was there. So then we were packing up more stuff, you know. Um more stuff to get it all ready then mom says i don't think i'll be back up this way i want to go to branson and i was like really mom she's like no i really want to go and kind of like you know okay so grandpa troy me mom and you know i'm helping mom pack up everything in the the front room Uh, then then we leave go get jeremy then there we go to Branson. We take my black truck. Um, Mom's a navigator. Not a good navigator. Uh, so you're driving. Mom's navigating. Yeah, Mom's navigating and Jeremy's in the back. Okay.
2: And you all picked him up. You you took him to school and then you picked him up from school. Yeah, and, but Mom
3: <laughs> told him that uh, that we're going to be leaving back to Texas because Jeremy Wasn't liking it there and all that stuff. Too small of a town and all that stuff. Right. So we, um, I think mom told the principal that, you know, this is just going to be his last day. And then, so then we went up to Branton and all that stuff. Went around, checked out some stuff, realized that we were going to have to book shows and all that stuff. But we kind of got the feel of it and all that stuff. We ate there. And then I believe that we drove back and it was kind of late. Then the next morning, Tuesday, me, mom, Jeremy me sit there and we go to Ashland, pick up the trucks, and understand that we got a truck with trailers and all that stuff to put the vehicles on right, and all that stuff. Right, right, right. So then we get the trucks. Literally, you got to understand, I'm on a tight schedule. Right. So I sit there and it's like go, go, go. So I load up uh, the first truck and by the late night, I probably had the second one halfway done. And I already had my truck up on one of the the trailers and all that stuff. Yeah. And then, um, but on Tuesday, um, we saw a whole bunch of vehicles when we were coming back from Ash Flat. And then that's when mom calls grandpa and says, you know, but uh, Casey must be having a party or something over there and stuff. Because grandpa would sit there and say, Casey would have parties out there, grew marijuana that he thought on the property and all that stuff. Because the cops even came out there one time and grandpa's like, I don't know what that is. Right. Um, and then, uh, then, so, so yeah, so. Mom calls Grandpa and all that stuff and says, you know, hey, you need to go check over there and all that stuff. And then so, uh, Grandpa
2: shows up and says it's a young lady's missing and stuff. So you guys found out Rebecca was missing before you guys got on the road Wednesday to head back.
3: Yeah, the, the a, young, you know, a young lady was missing, you know, Tuesday by Grandpa and all that stuff. Yeah. And then so it was like, you know, okay, wow, you know, well, what, what the hell is going on, and so, now, we, uh, Tuesday had everything almost all packed up, and, and then in the morning got up early, finished packing up the rest, yeah. and, um, so, and then we took off and came back, and then, uh, got down there on Thursday, and I think the cops came Friday, you know, and then question us, you know, what kind of person Casey is, asked, well, you know, where were you going up
2: there? And I was like, right. you know, i I thought that you guys found out about Rebecca after you already got back to Texas. But it, it's, you know, it's kind of odd that you were at the trailer on Sunday night talking to Casey out in the driveway, and you guys are still up there when law enforcement starts looking for her and nobody talked to you guys in Arkansas. You know, that's kind of unusual how that worked out. So so
0: The small talk and niceties went on for a while until McNeil presented the idea that maybe the local police department in Oregon had a polygrapher on duty that day. Since Miller had already agreed to take a polygraph if he ever found himself in Arkansas again, McNeil pretended to come up with this idea at that moment and suggested he might be able to find a polygrapher that day so they could get the polygraph out of the way. This plan had already been put in place ahead of time by McNeil and other local officers, who made arrangements to have a polygrapher on standby ready to administer a test. Miller was trapped into agreeing to take the test. The next audio clip takes listeners through the conversation which took place between polygrapher Damian Acosta and Miller immediately after the test was complete.
4: So the results on the exam of deception indicated, right? So as to the questions of did you, you know- How does that mean by that? that? Cause you failed the test. I failed the test, yes. Yes, and so- My heartbeat felt like it was just beating out of my chest. Yeah, and so what that tells me is that, just, there's a couple things it tells me, right? It tells me that, this doesn't tell me that you're a bad man. It just tells me, that, hey, when you answer that question, you're not telling the complete truth, all right. that's between me and you, and you know, I've gotten to know you, and so we just need to know what happened, right, There's something that obviously happened. Which one of those boxes happened uh, to Rebecca? I don't know. Okay. You know, some things happen out there, uh, we just want to, you know, want to just understand what happened, and uh, you know, I just want you to be honest with me, right, and so, and you said yourself, right? you did something that you know you would own up to it right yeah. you're a man of your word right yep. and so uh, you know I don't know where you were at in your life that something happened right and then so uh, I just want you to be honest with me right because I, I trust you right alright this doesn't tell me that you're a bad man everything else one if you do one bad thing it doesn't mean you're an evil man right but you know people outside of this room they want to know are you sorry for what you did? And so, even like Rebecca's mom, she needs an answer, right? And yeah. so, and if something like, something happened to your your daughter or your sister or something like that, your child, would, you would want to know. And I know that you're a man of God, right? You go to church, you volunteer and stuff. And I know that you're a good man. Uh, one bad thing does not erase all the good things that you did. And all people want—I don't know what happened in there, but hey, was it an accident? Something happened. Uh, I'm telling you, I do not know. I do not know. So, Mike has other information, right? He wants to share it with you, right? And so he has a better understanding of the of the case than I do, right? And he's prepared to talk to you about those things. Yeah, so sure. Can I get you a...
0: At this point, Mike McNeil returned to the room to talk to Miller and show him pictures of evidence from the crime scene.
4: All right, Billy. Really. So, some information that I have not provided you. You know, we we talked about your DNA being at the crime scene, and you you tried to give an explanation as to why your DNA would be at the crime scene because your mom gave Claude furniture. They gave furniture, stuff and, and bedding, and you even you even said that it it would be reasonable for your DNA to be on the bedding, which is absolutely absurd. This is a washcloth that was under the bed that the killer used to clean up. It was watered up in a ball. Okay? We've got we've got the killer's DNA on that washcloth. Okay. okay? Would there be any reason for your DNA no, to be on, be on that washcloth? It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be on there. That's right, it shouldn't be. Yeah. That truck looked familiar? Yeah. Yeah, that's your truck. Yeah. Okay. Biological evidence, Billy, lasts for decades. Blood, skin cells, all kinds of stuff. Okay. Alright, that was a really bloody crime scene. What, you, what happened, you got blood on the side of your shoe. We got Rebecca's DNA next to the gas pedal in your truck. No question about it, her DNA's in your truck. So what you have to do is you have to explain to me how that's possible. If you didn't kill her, You know who did, and if you know who did, if you're covering for Casey, dude, I'm telling you, you have got to come forward right now with what you know because you cannot get around biological evidence in the floorboard of your truck. Okay? So tell me what happened, Billy. Tell me. I I did not kill her. Who did? (sighs) Who did? I don't know who the, the people are. All right. How were you involved in this thing? All right, I am going to put myself on where I went uh, hunting on Grandpa's property. All righty. And then when I was coming back out, I saw a white vehicle and a young blond haired guy on the back porch. And it looked like he had gloves on and uh, he jumped over the back porch. I jumped over, kind of walked into the house to see what the hell was going on because Grandpa's place has been robbed. Uh, not Grandpa, Uncle Bobby's place has been robbed and I was thinking that it was being robbed. What did you see? What I saw was it looked like somebody was cleaning up. You went into the trailer. Yeah, I stepped into the trailer. What were these people doing? What did they say? They didn't. They took off. And then I sat there and kind of started running around, and then I thought it was the neighbors. Okay. All right. So whenever you came in here and you told us that Monday morning, you and your mom took Jeremy to school. That was a lie. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's saying. Okay, and, and the truth is that you got up early Monday morning to go hunting before, before mom and them got up. Before mom and them got up. Yep. So I went and went over there to go hunting and stuff, and then to shoot a deer and, and, and that. And you're coming back out of the Deer Woods. Yeah. And I'm seeing a white vehicle and look like two guys, one look blonde haired. Where was so the one vehicle? It was parked right in the back. Uh. Uh-huh. So right close to the uh, back porch. Okay. And you're you're on foot, right? Yeah, I'm on foot. I jumped. Hold on! I jumped over the fence. I had my truck there. So your truck was at the trailer. My truck was in well, far away in the back of the property and stuff. Uh-huh. Then I was driving out to go home and uh-huh. sit there and Billy, listen, man, it's okay. It's okay. All right. What you're saying. You tried to clean up best that you could, Billy. Don't drag your mom through this anymore. Don't drag your brother through this anymore. Give give the family some peace. It was a freak deal, man. You did not mean the killer. I know that. But it happened. Okay? It just happened. That doesn't make you a bad guy. You just you just freaked out, man it happens I talk to people all the time that do this kind of stuff it's okay it happens it should have never happened but it did okay so tell me Billy just tell me tell me what you did what, what do you want me to tell you? I want, me, I want you to tell me what you did how it went down one thing about this is it's been reeling in your head like a movie reel since it happened. There isn't anything about this that you forgot. I know that because I've been doing this a long time. I'm just going to tell you that I did it. I did it. You gotta, I'm sorry. You, I'm sorry for what I did. It. you got to tell me how it went down. Before. I'm just going to tell you that I kind of blocked it out of my mind in a way to survive. You compartmentalized it. Yeah. So, I had to, I had to block it out to, to sit there and function. Okay. Were you in the trailer when she got back that morning? Had you already? No. How'd you get in there? The door was kind of cracked open. There was no doorknob. Right. I know. So I went in. Walk me through it. I'm just going to tell you it. that I did it. You can't just tell me you did it. you got to tell me how you did it. You, got, you have to. You have to. Listen, man. I already know. You're not going to tell me anything that I don't already know. But you have to tell me. It's part of it. Let me tell you, it's going to make you feel better. You don't think it is. It will. Confession makes you feel better. I'm telling you. It will be like a million pounds is going to be lifted off you. But we have to talk about it. We have to talk about what you did in the trailer. We have to talk about what you did after the, at when you left. So let's let's just get into it. Let's talk about it. Oh. I remember going in the trailer and stuff, and then it just happened so quick and so fast. And then I freaked out. Listen, man. You know, I I, I, I I'm telling you. You know, I I'm confessing to you. I'm telling you that I did it. What'd you do? Arrest me. What'd you do? You know, arrest me. What you, you do saying it? that you said that I killed her my her blood and all that stuff is in there? Then arrest me. I'm confessing. I did it. Billy, you're under arrest for the murder of Rebecca Gold. Okay. Tell me how it happened. Uh, I was in the pasture, in the back pasture where there's a fence. I jumped over the fence or my vehicle couldn't be seen. Then went to the front door. Knocked on the door. She answered. Then went into the place. Did you forcibly escort her to the bedroom? No. How'd that happen? I just asked to use the phone. So my DNA should be there. She went to lay back down, and then it happened. What'd you take in there? You're saying a piano, piano leg. What? Piano leg? Is that what you used to hit her with? That's what's missing, right? No, I'm just saying. That's what's missing. I'm asking you. Is that what was used to cause her injuries? Yeah? jeopardize so this you I, know I'm just, just telling you yeah why would I steal somebody's weed I didn't steal her weed okay I panicked I freaked out did she put up a fire when you was raping no I didn't rape her never never touched her like that you intended to no Billy, I'm telling you, no. What I was your not. intentions? Your intentions were to go in there and just kill her. Why? I, mean, it was like a light switch that just went off. Had but she, she made fun of you. No, was, she didn't. I just went in there and it was like, bam, 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 and that was it. And then I freaked out.
0: Miller went on to give mostly vague statements, although some of his details about the crime scene were accurate. He never provided a motive for the murder and claimed he killed Rebecca on Monday morning, September 20th, 2004. With prompting, he agreed that he had used the piano leg to hit her and that it shattered after two hits. He claimed he then strangled her with a necktie. Miller stated that he put her body in the bed of his truck, drove through downtown Melbourne and disposed of her body off Highway 9. He said he then went to the car wash and mower and to wash out his vehicle, and while there, disposed of the bedding Rebecca had been wrapped in for transport and the piano leg. He never gave any information of when or why he put certain items in a suitcase and threw it down an embankment near his mom's rental home. After a while, McNeil took a break, and Acosta re-entered the room to keep Miller occupied.
4: People have done, you know, bad things to kids, right? Stuff, killed kids, right? This isn't one of those things. This isn't something where, you know, there's a mass killing of kids or something like that. There's some people out there who aren't sorry and they would just continue to do things, right? I mean, Do you have a a trail of bodies behind you? If, If you do, now's the time to clear your slate, right? How many others are there out there? There are others out there. I can tell by looking at your face. All right. Let's talk about the other ones. All right? Let's be done with it once and for all, that's it. Now's the time to move forward, to repent for what you did to those other ones, right? Because there's other ones. Okay. Let's talk about the next one. Do you think there's the next one? Yes. Without a doubt. I can tell I know you now. And then so you're torn behind like, okay, I've already Told you about the other ones. What's the benefit? The benefit is it's for your soul, man. Let's talk about the next one. Where's she at? Cause you know she's got a mother, just like your mom loves you, just like your mom loves you, right? Somebody out there is missing someone that they love, right? Right. Your mom still has you. She knows where to see you. She knows where to find you. There's another one, right? We need to bring her home. Right? I need a map. Okay. What state? I need mean, a map. Okay. Uh, United States map? Yeah.
0: Miller went on to confess to five other murders in the states of Texas, Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Oklahoma. However, he provided no dates, names, or detailed description of these alleged victims. He stated that all of the victims' bodies had been found, which, if true, meant he followed the investigative progress of those cases yet he claimed to not remember any specific details about the murders. As of this recording, we have no idea if law enforcement is utilizing his information to confirm or refute these additional confessions. Our team is working independently to contact law enforcement agencies in those states and search unsolved murders to identify possible similarities to Rebecca's murder. When we have more information we can share with listeners on this front, we will definitely do so.
1: When a crime is committed... Clues live within digital devices. That's digital forensics. Learn how to process and analyze that data by earning a Bachelor's of Science in Digital Forensics from American Military University. Classes are online with monthly program starts. Learn more about AMU's Digital Forensics degree by visiting amuonline.com forensics.
0: After receiving the case file documents, it took George and I a couple weeks to get the contents organized. After we had some time to independently study them, George and I got on the phone to discuss some of the key information revealed to us through those case file contents. Hey, George, how you doing?
1: Good, Jen. How are you?
0: I'm pretty good. I thought since we now have gotten our version of the case file, we'll call it, from the Arkansas State Police on the Rebecca Gold case that we could talk through Some of the revelations or new information that we gained from looking through the case file, and I will caveat my statement about our version because we know there are certain items that were given to either Dennis Simons or Mike McNeil of the state police when they were on the investigation that are not in the case file, and there are actually some other documents that weren't even from us, but should be in the case file and aren't, but... The purpose here today is discuss our thoughts now on where we're at with the case and what we learned. So it's a loaded and difficult question, George, but when you first started going through the case file, what jumped out at you?
1: The first thing that jumped out at me was something that you and I had speculated about for years. We had speculated that there was no proof of life for Rebecca on Monday morning. We were told that there was a video at the Possum Trot Convenience Store. We were told that there were two witnesses at the Sonic who said they saw her. And when we got the case file, we found out that the manager at the Sonic never told the police in 2004 that he saw her. In fact, he didn't say that he saw her car or anything. And the car hop, there were claims made that she saw her, and that turned out not to be true either. In fact, when it came to the car hop, apparently Casey walked in to work late around 8.08 and told her that Rebecca had just dropped her off. So it was Casey telling her that Rebecca did it, not her independently seeing her or her car. And then we found out there's no video at the possum trial, which we thought that was the case. And so basically, all you have when it comes to proof of life on Monday morning is the recollection of a clerk who says that she's not sure if she saw her Monday morning. And I also thought it was interesting that the clerk in her statement to police said that Rebecca walked in, bought a cappuccino, and that she walked out. And if you look at the register tape, there is a transaction For a cappuccino and a breakfast sandwich, which the clerk did not mention, Mm -hmm. at 8.03, which means quite literally Rebecca would have had to have traveled back in time to buy that because she drops Casey off at 8.08. Yeah. And so I think that the proof of life on Monday morning, in my opinion, there is none.
0: There really isn't. We have one eyewitness recollection. But we just know in law enforcement, traditionally eyewitness statements are very unreliable. And you really need something more to have proof of life of a victim. And going back to that clerk, her recollection of Rebecca's clothing was totally different than what Casey said Rebecca wore Monday morning. So one of them is not remembering correctly, and I probably know which one it is.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with that. And also, not only does the clothing differ, but what Rebecca actually purchased differs. Yes. As far as the tape register goes... How many times do people walk into convenience stores and buy breakfast sandwiches and cappuccinos? Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people will push back and say, well, you know, they found a a breakfast sandwich and a cappuccino at the McCullough residence. But we found this out from the case file that it was Claude McCullough who found the breakfast sandwich and the cappuccino after the police had searched the house. And this was found days after she had been reported missing on Tuesday morning so it's not reliable. I'm not saying somebody planted it. There might be some rational explanation as to why it's there, but the police didn't find it. Correct. So it wouldn't be reliable evidence in a court of law.
0: I don't think it would have been admissible in court because they couldn't put any sort of time frame on when those two items went into the microwave or how long they'd been there. So you can't prove they belong to Rebecca. If you look at the photo of the interior of Rebecca's car, her cup holders are full. If she bought this hot, cappuccino on monday morning where'd she put it to drive back to the house between her legs that doesn't make sense to begin with and she was driving stick so that'd be really difficult and so i've wondered if she bought this coffee where in her car did she place it while she drove back so right don't have an answer but it's something to think about totally agree and the house was processed for 12 13 14 hours something like that When you have a CSI team on site, they can't leave. They're usually suited up. They're gloved up. There's usually someone who will bring a meal to them. And so one of my theories is that when they were processing the house on Tuesday, someone brought them coffees and sandwiches. And one of them at that point couldn't eat it or drink it. So they stuck it in the microwave for later and forgot.
1: Yeah. And they may not legitimately remember doing it.
0: True. They could have told the person that brought it, just stick it in the microwave for later and they forgot. And the clerk... Also, explained that back then, if you bought a sandwich, the clerk was the one who had to fetch the sandwich for you out of the heater that was behind the cash register. So it wasn't like self serve. Mm-hmm. And so that was another reason that she felt that her memory on that part of a recollection was accurate in terms of Rebecca only buying a coffee. But again, grain of salt, because it's really difficult to remember these tiny details when they don't seem important.
1: Totally agree. There were two other friends who went out with Casey that night. We had the statements from Laren and Philip that got leaked because Dennis Simons, the detective in the case, decided to give those statements back to them in 2018 to freshen their memories, quote unquote. And so we wondered how were the other two friends' statements from that night, a guy named BJ and another guy named Sean, we wondered how closely they would comport to the statements that we already had. And Jen, what we found out was that these two statements are almost spot on Mm -hmm. with what we had in the others. So now you have four people, four, saying that Casey got on the phone for some reason or with someone. And when he got off the phone, he told all four of them that she was missing. And in two of the statements, it says for 24 hours, which would have put her being missing on a Sunday night.
0: Mm -hmm. And I'll remind People or inform people that don't know the phone number that Casey called was his own voicemail. He didn't actually right. call Rebecca's sisters who'd been calling him all evening. He didn't call her mom or her dad or anybody else. He just called his own voicemail. So, mm-hmm. obviously, to check messages and I guess see who had left him messages and what they said. And so then he gets off the phone from listening to his voicemail and tells all the friends that she's missing. But goes about his night, smokes pot, hangs out, sleeps on their couch, doesn't do anything about it, Mm -hmm. and then is forced to go home Tuesday morning. That was actually interesting to learn. Mm
5: -hmm.
0: He didn't plan to go home Tuesday morning, but somewhere along the way, Monday, he lost his Sonic shirt or misplaced it, and so he didn't have a proper work shirt when he got to work Tuesday morning, and his boss made him go home and get a Sonic shirt. And so Casey goes home. And apparently misses all the blood and the dog feces, a washing machine full of bloody water. Even though he says he opened the washing machine, the bleach tray is full of blood. And something else we recently learned is he also didn't notice that his bed had been moved in his bedroom. And I'm sorry, but I don't buy that at all. Especially when you know your girlfriend's missing. No one's going to not notice furniture in their bedroom having been moved about.
1: I totally agree with that. It's incomprehensible. It is. To me, it was incomprehensible before when there's bloody pillows in plain sight. Mm -hmm. If she was killed Monday morning, then you've had 24 hours basically for all this blood and bleach and all this other stuff to make probably what was a very, very pugnant odor in there. Mm -hmm. Even Charlie Melton, who's now the sheriff over in Izzard County, said as soon as he opened up the uh, washing machine, when he flipped the lid, when he saw the bedding in there, he immediately knew something was wrong. Yeah. And so Casey, before he went there with Charlie, made a trip to the house to get a shirt, didn't notice any of that stuff. And here's the thing. Charlie wouldn't have noticed if his bed was out of place because it's not his bedroom. Hey, right. But Casey would have. Mm-hmm. So, but even for the responding officer, even he was alarmed by what he saw. So, yeah it's just all very highly suspicious. And he told the police that morning, and that's another thing we learned from the case file within his first statement to police was around one thirty on that Tuesday. And he said that he went back to the house and didn't notice any of that stuff.
0: Yep. And I want to explain why we know the bed was moved. And that's because, and we have diagrams in our Facebook group that people can look at explaining this and giving a visual aid. In looking at the crime scene photos, there's a huge blood stain on the carpet in Casey's bedroom in the northwest corner. And there's also blood spatter on the north and west walls in that corner. So that has to be where Rebecca fell after the second hit. And we know that the bed was moved because the bed is pushed into that corner to cover up the big blood stain on the carpet I note to listeners that the bloodstain and spatter was in the northeast corner of the bedroom, not the northwest. It's clear they pushed the bed into that corner to cover that big blood stain on the carpet. And so that's how we know that furniture was moved. And again, it's literally incomprehensible that you wouldn't notice that. So I don't buy it. Totally
1: agree. Don't buy it either.
0: Nope. And something else, Casey and his family are always on social media a few years back preaching about how he has a solid alibi and his alibi is better than anybody else's and all this. He has no alibi. There's no time card from Sonic. They never got it. So we have no proof of when he actually got to work or if he stayed there. The only information we have about his arrival time is the recollection of his boss and the car hop who both said 808. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that's not an alibi. So he had no alibi and it definitely wasn't solid.
1: Well, and it also goes further than that, too, because he was obviously late enough that morning that the manager actually said something to him. You know, like mm-hmm. you and I talked about it. If you're a couple minutes late to work, no one's going to say anything to you. But when you get around the 10-minute mark, a lot of times that's when a boss will say, hey, you need to be on time. And the, and the boss did say in his statement that he did have a talking with Casey about being late. And Casey did say that he tried to call to tell them he was going to be late. That the phone ringer was off at the Sonic.
0: Mm -hmm, That's right. So we found out that on Tuesday, the day Rebecca was reported missing, Casey was administered a polygraph and he failed 100%. -hmm. What's really aggravating about that is the reason you give someone a polygraph is to use it as a tool in an interview. And he was never questioned about his failed polygraph. (laughs) I can't even begin to understand why. Why would you even give it to him? Why bother if you're not even going to ask him Why? what he thinks the reason is for failing it? His first interview with Mark Hollingsworth was, what, 26 minutes or something? Mm-hmm. I think it was quite short. Sorry, Mark, but you're a terrible interviewer. <laughs> I don't know where you learned your questioning techniques or obviously didn't learn proper questioning techniques, but Casey was giving out so many red flags and you missed all of them. And that could have been the turning point right there in that interview, if they knew how to question him properly and interpret the answers that he was giving. But, George, it was a very interesting statement that Casey made when he was asked how he met Rebecca and what he thought of her. You want to talk about that?
1: Yeah. He met her at Sonic. She started working there. And he said the first time he saw her, she was the most beautiful creature he'd ever seen, which is kind of odd because when the most beautiful creature he'd ever seen vanished. He didn't bother to go look for her and didn't bother to try to help her family in any way, shape or form find her. Mm -hmm. And in fact, he did everything he could possibly do to avoid them and the situation up to the point of not even going to her funeral. So I think it kind of speaks for itself.
0: Yeah, it does. The description was really interesting though, because his wording that he's used through the years has changed drastically and he's Clearly tried to distance himself from her since that first interview and just call her a friend. I don't know about you, George. I've never broken up with a guy and been their friend and then went and spent the weekend at their house and slept in the same bed with them. Maybe I'm a little naive. I don't know. But to me, that seems really odd and hard to believe that you guys are just friends but sharing this bed. And by all accounts, he wanted to get back with her. Yes, that's what she told Danielle on their drive into town that evening that he was trying to be exclusive with her and she didn't want to be.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: So that Friday, after Rebecca went missing, there was an officer in Texas who went and interviewed some family members of Casey's. And those were the Millers, Linda, William, and Jeremy. The ASP knew that the three of them had been living in the Melbourne area prior to the murder. And then I'm just going to continue using my preferred word, which is fled the state in the aftermath. They can claim that this move was planned, but I don't buy it. Either way, they packed up their entire house on Tuesday, the day Rebecca's reported missing, and fled the state Tuesday into Wednesday and went back to where they were from in Texas and unloaded two huge U-Haul trucks. And then Friday, an officer from Texas was sent to interview them but there's a lot of issues with how that interview went down, right?
1: Yeah. First of all, all three of them were interviewed in the same space. They weren't separated, which that's not the way you would do it. You would separate them to see if their stories are all the same. It was clear in even the officer who went to interview them was asking them about furniture inside Casey McCullough's house. And Jeremy, who was, I think, 14 at the time, piped up and said, well, there's a loose piano leg, because they were asking if there was something about the furniture. And I think it's possible that had they took him to a separate room and pressed him at that moment, they probably would have gotten a lot more information about what happened to Rebecca. But they didn't do that. And it just astonishes me that I can look at that report, you can look at that report, and we immediately – there's red flags going off for us – But for the detective who had this case all of these years before Mike McNeil took over, he never saw a red flag there. And I just don't understand it. I mean, these two cousins and this aunt, like you said, fled the state quite literally as the police were putting up the crime scene tape at Casey's trailer. They load all their stuff into these two huge U-Hauls and move 10-plus hours away to Aransas Pass, Texas, which is on the Texas coast. And they are interviewed by police. Then they get this report, which is highly suspicious. And like you said, has many red flags and they don't do anything with it.
0: Something George that we found out later about that interview in Texas is that apparently the officer who conducted the interview actually knew William from high school. They played football together and partied together. Mm -hmm. So obviously that did not help the situation. And When you have a personal relationship with a suspect, that's obviously going to cloud your judgment and you're going to have your own personal biases that interfere with your ability to remain objective and look at him as a suspect. So to me, that's another huge problem that occurred with that interview. Now, obviously, the ASP didn't probably realize that this guy knew William personally, but there was still a lot of stuff that they should have followed up on. And they did go do some forensic testing, I think, on the two U-Haul trucks But beyond that, that was it, right? That was it. Nothing more with the Millers for 16 years.
1: Nothing. Anytime you read a case file, especially a cold case file, there are seminal moments in the investigation when, if you could go back in time and change something, it might have changed the whole trajectory of the case. Right. And right there was one of those moments.
0: At that point, they'd had some time to get a story together, but not a lot of time, not 16 years worth of time. right? And I truly believe that the three of them had been separated, that interviewers would have figured out quickly that the stories didn't jive in some form or fashion. Right. But unfortunately, they didn't follow that normal protocol and separate them.
1: Yeah. And here's the thing. What did they do in Oregon 16 years later? Yeah. They took them to separate rooms. Yep. And Mike McNeil at one point came out and told Linda, he said, all your stories are exactly the same and there's no way that could be true.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, that's all that was done with the Millers through the years. So, that was that Friday, the following Monday, Rebecca's body is found. And I don't know, I'm still stumped as to how the information about where she was supposedly found was incorrect through all the years. But we had always been led to believe she was found at that pull-off overlook area on Highway 9, Mm -hmm. which kind of makes sense for a place to put a body Instead, she's found like 100 yards or so south on Highway 9, and literally if you drove on the road above where she's found and unloaded her, you would have to stop in the lane of traffic and potentially block traffic to unload a body. Now, I know you have an alternate theory Mm -hmm. maybe on her disposal, but no matter what, it is an odd place to me for a body to be put. So what were your thoughts
1: Yeah, it's a very odd place to put a body because it's very inaccessible. Mm -hmm. Just because of the simple fact you have to stop in the middle of the highway, there's no space between the main highway and the embankment. I mean, it's right there. Yes. It's very narrow, and it's hard to believe that somebody would do that, but I guess it's possible. My alternate theory is is that there was like an ATV trail or something else that they could have gotten the truck down Mm -hmm. a little bit going from the Outlook to the spot where she was found because that would make more sense to me because you would be concealed. You couldn't be seen from the road. Yes, The positioning of her body is a little odd. If my theory is true, we don't know how close the person could have got the truck to the spot where she was found. We don't know if she was dragged for a little ways or carried. Mm Mm-hmm. We were told that she was found 35 feet down the embankment. I told you for years that it seemed like she was much closer to the road to me because I was there. But mm-hmm. it turns out it was only 17 feet.
0: A lot of people have asked me if I think her body was staged. And obviously, we're never going to publish photos of how she was found because we would not do that to a victim or their family members. But So I've tried to verbally describe her positioning because it is a little odd. Mm-hmm. She is not splayed out like I would expect if she was pushed or rolled down the embankment. She's not totally in a fetal position either. But her legs are kind of pulled up, and I believe one leg is over the other one. Mm -hmm. And her arms are sort of drawn in, and she's up against a tree, but not sitting up. She is on her side on the ground, but there is a tree to the downhill side of her, kind of behind her neck and shoulder area. And so, to me, it's not consistent with her being pushed or rolled down that embankment, I would expect her arms at least to be kind of out to her sides and her legs to be much straighter or maybe flailed out as well. But it also isn't consistent with her being carried there. Okay, let's say you got two people for a second. She's going to be probably kind of stretched out, like more straight. I guess if you're carrying her in your arms as one person and then... If you can picture that, the victim is sort of in a fetal sitting position. But then you're putting them down up against a tree. I don't know what to make of it. It is really perplexing to me.
1: We also have taken into account, too, that she's wrapped up in a blanket or a sheet. Yes. And then they have to unfurl her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And take the sheet with them. It is odd. And it's probably something we'll never really know the answer to.
0: It is possible that she was not moved until several hours after death. And so she was in partial rigor. And for whatever reason, she ended up in that position at the house or in the back of the truck or something. And because of the partial rigor, when she was pushed or rolled or placed, her body kind of stayed in that position. But full rigor doesn't come on for 12 hours. And I don't think there's any scenario where the person waited 12 hours to move her. I guess it's not impossible. But I still can't figure out if she's in partial rigor, why is she in that position? It's a mystery. I don't know if we'll ever solve that one.
1: Agreed. I don't know that we'll ever solve it either.
0: Uh, Oh, I know something else when we got the case file that I was really curious about is what led to the divers searching the White River the following May. So May of 2005, right? They searched the river. Mm -hmm. And of course, through the years we heard, well, piano leg is probably the weapon. And we've always said, well, you can't be searching for a piano leg. Surely they're smart enough to know a piano lake isn't going to sink if you throw it off a bridge. It's wood. It's going to wash downstream. So we figured they had to be looking for something metal, but we couldn't figure out what because it's pretty obvious she wasn't shot. But sure enough, George, they were looking for a gun.
1: Yeah, they spent some time down there near Guyon, which is the small town near the McCullough property, and they were searching off that bridge and they were looking for a gun. We don't know exactly why. Maybe they thought that she was hit with the gun, that somebody maybe pistol-whipped her. Maybe that was the injuries to her head. Mm-hmm. But they spent a significant amount of time out there looking in the river for a gun that they thought was somehow connected to this case, even though she wasn't shot.
0: Wasn't it a tip that somebody said oh, Chris had a gun that he threw off the bridge?
1: Yes. Yes, it was. It was yeah. just a tip that they got that when they were after Chris Cantrell. So.
0: Yep. And Chris came... Onto the radar, from what I can tell, around November or December 2004. This was at the point, or a little bit after, I think Dennis was assigned the case. And the River Search is just one of a million examples of how Dennis would follow a tip or possible evidence that pointed at Chris or that might connect Chris, but not follow up on others. And that theme is so apparent through this case file. I mean, what would you estimate? 50% of it is probably relevant to Chris, a guy who had nothing to do with this murder.
1: If you take out, especially like the forensic components and like the crime scene components of the case file, and you strictly base just on interviews of suspects and people of interest, it's easily 50%. It might even be more Mm -hmm. all focused on him. And the funny thing is, Jen, is that we read through all of it. And it almost was ludicrous. Yeah. I told Dennis this years ago. I, I don't understand if he killed her, why did he not take a match yep. and burn the place to the ground? Mm-hmm. Why would you spend time trying to wipe away DNA and fingerprints and all this other stuff? Why would you take the risk of moving her body yep. eight plus miles away? I mean, all of these things are huge risks when all you have to do is get a can of gas, dump some in there, and light that place on fire, and guess what? Yeah. It all goes away, and it's even possible they may have never been able to determine that she was actually murdered. I mean, they might have thought that the place caught on fire, and she burned up in the thing, and she had injuries to her head, but maybe the ceiling collapsed on top of her in the fire. And Sure. Mm-hmm. It may have went down as a suspicious death, but it might not have even ever
0: been a murder. Yeah, they might not have ever been able to determine manner or cause of death in that situation, and those trailers burn like a tinderbox. Yeah. Yeah. When I first started looking at the case, I'm like, no, this wasn't a stranger homicide. Why would they care about cleaning Casey's house and moving his furniture around to cover up blood? And what? You wouldn't. You'd grab the weapon and you'd leave. Or like you said, maybe torch the place, but you're not going to put her in her trunk and drive her around. It's clear that Dennis had zero training in behavioral analysis or any understanding of it and was completely resistant to hearing about it when I tried to explain, but had detectives taken some time to understand the significance of certain actions that killers take at a scene and what they mean and what they indicate about the killer, they probably would have been led in a totally different direction on this case. And we keep getting slammed for, well, you guys were wrong and you accused Casey. Let me remind everybody that Mike McNeil went in exactly the same direction as we did. Mm -hmm. and he said on the stand, I knew it had to be Casey or a member of his family. So we weren't wrong. We're in the same direction without the case file. right? And trust me, if we'd known William Miller had been in town, this would have been a done deal probably a year earlier.
1: Agreed. And Jen, the thing of it is, is that when we found out six, seven weeks before he was arrested, that he was in town that weekend, and... All the alarm bells for both of us went straight, you know, on a scale of one to 10. Yes. It rose up to a 10. We were like, whoa, this guy was in town. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, because our analysis, now we didn't go after Casey. The facts went after him. Yes. You know, the lies he told went after him. Mm -hmm. And our analysis that we spent a lot of time, you and I probably spent thousands of hours. Our analysis indicated to us that it was a male member of that family. Yeah. And on a hierarchy, you're going to go, Okay, who's the most likely person to kill a love interest or a spouse? It's always the boyfriend or the girlfriend or the husband or the wife. And so, number one, that person be at the top of the list. Well, then you try to do things to eliminate that person. Well, this killer in this case cleaned up the scene,
5: Mm -hmm.
1: moved the body, and a very unusual weapon was used, and that was the loose piano leg. So now Mm -hmm. you got to go, Okay, and all of the world who knows that this piano lake will come loose and who has the motivation to clean up the mess and move the body? Well, that list, we can whittle it down to a handful of people. And here's the thing had we known William yeah. had come and visited that weekend, he would have been on the list for sure. And, you know, Mike McNeil said from the stand, In the courtroom, he said William was like his number five or number six on the list, and that's exactly where he should have been. Mm -hmm. He's just a random cousin who came into town for a few days to, quote-unquote, help his mom and brother move, which you and I don't believe that, but whatever. And so that would be the proper positioning for him on the list. Yes. You know, and that's how Mike approached
0: it. Yes, exactly. And the other thing that just resonates with me is that the McCullough family clearly went to great lengths to never mention that William and his family had been in the area. And why would you cover that up? I mean, there's only one reason. (laughs) Because you you knew something about the crime and his involvement. You know, and like Catherine got that tip about the blue car with Texas plates being there Saturday. Now we know that was Linda and Jeremy. But why didn't any of the McCullochs just come out back in the day and say, oh yeah, that was my cousin who was living down the road? Right. We know why now.
1: And here's the thing that we know. They tried to attack some of the rumors on social media and other places, they tried to dispel some of the rumors and some other things, but they never tried to dispel that one, which was really odd.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. We know the case file is incomplete. I said that at the beginning of the episode. Mm -hmm. For example, Jim Fitzgerald, who's a world-renowned forensic linguist, did an analysis of the anonymous letter sent to Dr. Gould with regards to the case. He wrote up an analysis, and I sent it to Dennis Simons and said, This is expert analysis that's relevant. Please put it in the case file. That's not there. Nothing I gave them is there. I don't think there's one thing. Which is really interesting because there's things that Mike McNeil actually asked for. Yeah. (laughs) And same with Catherine and I think you that we gave him and none of that's in there. So I'm not sure what the deal is with that. But we have a majority of it. We have 10 parts of Williams' interview and confession, which are on my youtube site but we realized it looks like we're missing one more Mm -hmm. so we're going to work on getting that
1: have you ever mentioned on this
0: podcast about casey confessing to a friend i honestly can't remember but we can talk about it for a minute okay
1: because that is in there yeah it's in there i mean it was on dateline too
0: so when Catherine was doing the research for her podcast in 2018 there was a gentleman who came forward to her who wanted to remain anonymous so we're not going to name him She never named him. It was actually Dennis Simons who outed him, which is just so unprofessional and actually could be dangerous. Mm -hmm. But anyhow, this person came forward to Catherine, and you want to talk about what he said?
1: Yeah, he said that it was either 2010 or 2011. He and Casey were working together, and they were on the road. And one night, it was the two of them and another friend were at a hotel, and they had been drinking heavily. And Casey broke down and started crying, and he told these two friends that he hurt her and that he was the one that did it. And he gave some details. He said that she had turned her back to him, was walking away from him, and that's when he hit her with some type of an object. He didn't say what. And, of course, they were drunk, and so they were under the assumption that this was just maybe a story. But then the next day or a day later, when they were sober, this friend pressed him for more details, and he said one of the reasons that he got away with it was because the timeline was off.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: So the interesting part about it was that the friend that he told this to knew details about the crime that were not public knowledge. Yes. One, he said one of the reasons that they got into this argument that led to the injuries was that she was leaving him and that she didn't want to be with him anymore, and that she basically mocked him mm-hmm. and it set him off. And the interesting part about that was, is that the only person who knew that she was splitting off with him for good was her sister, Danielle. It wasn't public knowledge. And the second thing and of high interest to you and I, especially, was that after looking at the autopsy report, we came to the conclusion that she'd only been hit twice, and you did some rather lengthy experiments showing how she could have been hit, and it was clear and obvious from your research and the work you did that she was standing upright and turned into the first blow as it was delivered. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what this witness said. Yep. And he said it before any of this stuff was public knowledge. So I thought it was very interesting. I'm glad that it was included in the case file. Of course, Dennis never followed up on it. And he outed this person to the McCullough family.
0: Yes, he did. We actually have that recording of him doing that. Yeah. I think as Catherine has said multiple times in the last couple of weeks, if Mike McNeil had been on the case at that point in time, we'd probably be in a totally different place right now with this. I strongly believe Mike would have taken that much more seriously. And especially because he understood that the killer likely had to be a McCullough or a family member of the McCulloughs. He would have treated that report completely differently than Dennis did. And he wouldn't have just blown it off. But unfortunately, that's what happened. But for listeners who don't know, I recently just revealed this. But after the conviction, some of William's relatives have reached out and asked me to communicate with him. And I guess he wanted to communicate with me. And so we have been exchanging messages for about six months. And I did go interview him in prison. There is no way I could record it or anything like that. I couldn't even take a paper and a pencil in. But I did record my thoughts on our way to the prison and then had my husband with the recorder running as soon as I came out and tried to capture everything I could remember. And then, George, you called while we were in the car and I got on the phone with you and we talked about my visit for a while. So some of that content will be in an upcoming episode. I don't know when. William gave me a lot of details that we can't reveal at this time, but that may point to new evidence. And so we are working to chase down those kinds of leads and see what information or evidence we can come up with to take to the Arkansas State Police. So we're not quite done with this case yet. Not quite. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe never, who knows? (laughs) Maybe never.
1: That's consumed nearly uh, not half of my life. It's getting close.
0: Getting there, yep. Well, George, I'm glad that we got to talk through some of our findings and thoughts on the case file. Obviously, it's so extensive, and there's more in there than we can ever talk about on a thousand podcast episodes. But I think we hit some of the highlights today, don't you? Absolutely. I also want to address real quick, there was an episode on Dateline about Rebecca's case. George and I are going to go on some podcasts, and maybe even this one, and discuss that in more detail. But I just want to make it clear to listeners that Neither Catherine George nor I was included on that episode, and the reason is because the Arkansas State Police, the district attorney, and the Izard County Sheriff's Office all said that they would not agree to cooperate with Dateline if any of the three of us were included. So, think about that for a minute. And why, if we were so wrong and we don't know anything, why are we such a threat then? Right. We will talk in more detail about that at a later time. Absolutely. Well, anyways, George, thanks for spending some time with me today. And I know we'll be doing it again soon. So.
1: Yep. That's what we do.
0: (laughs) All right. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon and we'll talk soon.
1: You as well. Bye-bye.
0: Bye. Next time on Break the Case.
4: If he truly has information that points to somebody other than himself
1: let alone the timing, because that is a huge issue. Monday versus Sunday. Well, Doc, I think the thing about it is, when Jennifer's in there with him, Jen, here's the thing, you can tell him there is 0% chance this case ever getting reopened if there is not another person that can be tied to the crime. For all the people that don't understand why we won't just let this go, it's
0: because when you realize law enforcement is They they have the ability
4: to fix it. Well, are you nervous?
0: Only nervous if he plays a bunch of games and doesn't want to give up the truth because it's going to be really hard to make that call to Rebecca's dad.
5: Take the next left. Then you will arrive at your destination. Good luck. See you in a couple
0: hours. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by American Military University, narrated and produced by Jen Buchholz with co-host and investigative journalist George Jared, senior producers Leishan Kranick, Andy Crow, and Kristen Kretzler with support from Lisa Tannis, sound engineering and editing by Harvest Creative Services. Subscribe to Break the Case on iHeartRadio, Google, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.